From the Center for the Study of Art and Community, this is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. Now, at the Center, we talk endlessly about cross-sector programs and community collaborations. We also go on and on about hybrid leadership and skill sets. But what, you might be asking, does all that mean? Well, put simply, it means that we live in a world that increasingly operates across what were once considered fairly rigid boundaries. In that old world, the land of silos, community sectors like public safety, healthcare, education, social services, and the arts were perceived as discrete realms that only really intersected when they competed for resources in the city, state, or federal budgets. <laughs> While much of these traditional structures persist, smart folks all over recognize that issues like unemployment or homelessness or economic development just can't be addressed without strategies and partnerships that function across multiple community sectors, neighborhoods, and interests. So, Despite predictable resistance, more and more communities are building collaborative bridges and connecting their silos. Interestingly, finding that common ground often involves making translations across organizational and community cultures. Not surprisingly, our work at the Center for the Study of Art and Community is focused on advancing human creativity as a powerfully effective catalyst for forging these kinds of links and partnerships. Now, the reason I bring this up is that this show's guest is a poster child for this kind of cross-sector hybrid creative community leadership. Trained in theater and music and as a lawyer, Tasidra Jones has built a company that makes maximum use of all these assets in service to people and organizations working for change that need help, navigating the confounding systems that often determine their success or failure. Part one, the artist in me. So, Tisidra, when I met you, we were working in the Creative Community Leadership Institute in Minnesota, and since then you built a business that has a pretty interesting mission. Could you describe that? The shorter one-sentence version is, my company, Strong and Starlight Consulting, we help people create community and data-informed policies and programs that are accessible to communities. So we have two buckets, really, of work we do, the consulting component and then the educational side. And so any of the projects that we take on, it has to have a component that focuses on increasing access for people to information and resources and the ability to have an impact. If you're going to create a new policy program or practice, the people who have to navigate that system and the people who have to maintain that system should also be engaged in the development of that system. On the education side, it's all about system navigation, helping people understand how to navigate systems. So you started this before the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is it what you thought it would be? You know, what's interesting is I always, ever since I was a kid, I found out what my name meant which is Strong and Starlake. And so I was like, I'm going to have a company one day with that name. When I was six, no. when I started saying that, I was like, it could be a publishing company, it could be a record label, it could be all these things. And when I started it in December of 20, 
Uh, I was working with public entities around programs and policy, but what it's evolved into at this point, I hadn't foreseen at that time. And so we do, I've always enjoyed research and the more that I I see and I I come to know, I, I can geek out on a Census Bureau report because the artist in me and the community person in me, I, I don't see the numbers. I see stories. I see people. Mm. I see a lot more there. And so being able to use those artistic skills to have more meaning making is really something that I sometimes forget about because it's in there, but that's a big part of it. Too. So this is interesting. You mentioned the artist in me, right? <laughs> okay. And my question to you is, given your your background and are you a hybrid and if you are a hybrid how does that creative spirit how does that experience manifest in your work yeah i think i'm i'm a person with ever continuing intersecting identities <laughs> that continue to come up and hybrid and interconnected intersecting human i used to think about compartment compartmentalization but it's just very intertwined for me and the three foundational pieces from a career perspective would be I'm an artist, I'm a lawyer and an educator in terms of those ways that I see things. And they show up in in everything I do. I try to turn off different parts of my brain in certain settings, but they don't seem to stop um, in terms of that. And so definitely see things from a creative lens and the data informed part of it will often come first. The education, I've always been curious about if I learn something or I see something in a system, how can you help more people learn about it? And how can you help them navigate those things? And I find that there are lots of creative ways you can do that. So you are trained as a musician. I am. I am. I'm trained as a musician. Before I was a musician, I was acting long before that. And as actress, I was a playwright, producer. I did a lot of those things. And piano was my primary instrument once I finished school. So I know a lot of people who have backgrounds like yours, and they often talk about one practice becoming a metaphor for another practice. Do you have that experience? I think in some senses, I'll never forget my first summer after law school, my first semester or first year of law school, we had to do these interviews. And I went to somebody to have them take a look at my resume and see like, how can I have my best chances to, to get an opportunity? And the woman just took one look and she was like, remove all the art stuff off of your resume. You just, you won't get a job. You won't get an opportunity like that. Just cut off. I was like, that's my whole resume right now, ma'am. <laughs> and so I went home really that night because it was the night right before a day full of interviews, feeling a little discouraged. And then I was a little annoyed. And then I was very annoyed and I decided not to do that. And my first three interviews the next day were very interesting because the first person came in, they didn't say much, they had seen my resume. And the first question they asked me is, how would you compare and contrast Bach's approach to writing a prelude and fugue to how the framers and the founders of the Constitution did? And I went to this place in my mind that was awesome and had this great answer. And the person said, that's amazing because I've always seen that people who are musical can also apply some of those skill sets in our legal profession and the way that we think about things, how we construct things, how we build it. And I had two or three other interviews that morning with people who were also musicians and happened to be lawyers and other kinds of artists and and being able to say they are transferable, they do interconnect, we can't turn those parts off and one can inform the other. That was very refreshing and eye-opening for me about the importance of showing up as your whole self. Yeah, and you mentioned story before, and of course, a score is a story. It's a tonal story, It's, it's, it's a musical story, it's an emotional story. And if you're involved working with 
what we call organizations, which are actually really communities in a box. <laughs> and a community can't exist without a story and sometimes competing stories. And maybe that's when people bring you in is when some of the stories don't necessarily sync up with each other and they're looking to make some coherence out of it. Is that a, an accurate description of some of what you end up doing? That's a really great description for it. At the heart of the matter, most times when we're coming in, people are wanting to connect with communities and have their stories and inform what we're creating in one way or another. And the fascinating part about engaging various communities is that sometimes you do have, we did this one project with a library and we were doing listening sessions across all sorts of zip codes and districts in this particular community. And what was a priority for one community to change was far from that for another community. And people think about a city as one connected entity. How can you be responsive? And it's never going to be a one size fits all, in my experience. The importance of community specific solutions are just that what could be a win for one community may be a loss for another and how to reconcile those things. And translate across those communities. And in, in some ways, and I'm going to stretch this metaphor to death here, but it just seems to me, as a songwriter, I often end up with three songs that I would like to, to join, which do not have an obvious connective tissue. But I like to mess with that. Now, the, the lovely part of that is it's a choice. And a jurisdiction, a town, a city, a, a geography, doesn't have that choice often. It's one police department. And the reconciliation often requires the skill of noticing where the notes can mesh and connect so that other people can recognize it in a way that it doesn't feel like the consultant came in and just said, we have to cooperate, and that's just the way it is, right? There actually is mutual self-interest in this piece of music. Being coherent is a useful thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it, when you were mentioning about the music and the connection, my brain went to harmonizing, and then it went mm -hmm. to mashup type of songs, and mm -hmm. then sampling, and just how you can take these pieces that otherwise don't fit together and create something beautiful. I think that's the part of the work that a lot of times people underestimate is the depth of work it takes to really dig in with people, continue to ask the questions, figure out where is this connection? We're not going to completely geek out in music, but how can we modulate? How can we move from one key to another seamlessly in a way that ties it together? And that requires listening. Again, if we have two communities that have what feel like very competing interests and they can't connect, I also find that with the human condition and experience, there's far more that connects us than divides us. And that's the deeper work to really dig and poke into that. And when you can find those dots of what connects humans on that deeper level, certain things, people want their kids to get a good education. They want to be safe. These things are kind of these basic needs. I think that digging to find out what can connect, what can seem like disconnected groups is sometimes a part of the work that it requires more than folks sometimes invest fully into. Do your clients know what they're getting into with you? I don't know if they really do, the more that I think about <laughs> it now. One of my colleagues who's very wise has commented that we give a lot once we get in there. And I don't know if they fully get it. Our goal from day one is we're thinking about when we're gone. And I'd say, I don't want, I don't want to come back. 
After I've worked with you once, I don't want to work with you again on the exact same project. We're not going to do that. So you can learn Mm -hmm. step by step with us what we're learning about your community, what we're learning about your system and what you need to change. And we provide very comprehensive tools for people, recommendations. At the end, (laughs) they get all the materials and we've worked together, maybe six on the short end, but usually nine months. And you have all of the tools now. We have given you a step-by-step guide on how to do this. Now it's up to you to do it. And so if in a year you call us back to do the same thing, it means you didn't read this. It means you really didn't read it. Uh It means you really didn't listen. And we're not coming back. Part two, living history. So do you have a specific story that in some way illustrates, yeah, this is, wh- this is why I'm doing this, that involves in some way a creative process? Yeah, I'll work backwards from that <laughs> in the sense of I increasingly feel like everything that we're doing does involve a creative process mm-hmm. in terms of how I look at things. Even drafting a policy for a government entity is pulling from all these different pieces and researching to build mm-hmm. something brand new. That's a very interesting process for me. I, I have one example. This was before before my company, but it informs the way that I show up as a whole person. I was working through a program, a nonprofit that worked with young men who had either been in gangs or incarcerated. And they were coming out and wanting, they were looking to change their lives, get jobs, put their past behind them, do something new. And part of the work that I was doing was looking at the role of storytelling and music and art to help them tell their stories. And so we ended up working with them on a series of monologues of speaking their piece. But the end goal was to, each of them had targeted something in their stories, whether it was mental health, uh, mentorship, employment, business, entrepreneurship, that were aspirations in there. And their collective finished product, we did a, a production that wove in their monologues as well as research and data and performed them for lawyers and people who led different agencies to then raise their awareness about this and humanize people. Like these aren't just numbers on a page, these are real people's stories. And one of the outcomes from that work, it, an institution actually did change one of their policies in terms of how mm. they were addressing some of the young men that were there as a result of one of the young men's stories pertaining to mental health and how they were treating him, but not treating the real issue. And so those are things where I was inter folding in arts and folding in data and research to be able to change a policy. And that came before the company, but that mindset, that strategy, that approach is still woven into how I approach work that we do. So you came to this organization and they didn't hire you as a theater professional. No, it was a bunch of lawyers. (laughs) Yeah. And, And how was that received? How did they take to that? Yeah. One of the folks was a mentor to me and she was really just poking, find a way to pull these things together. I think it could be powerful. And so she encouraged me to do that. And they, it was very well received. On the broader legal community, there are a couple who are like really art to tell stories. But then once we learned the impact of it, it was a program that continued for years after I was gone. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that that's really great to hear that and see that, that it was valued by, again, people in the legal profession, where there are those who are spouting this narrative that art and law, these are very serious people. We don't need this, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I'm grateful to have had the opportunity to be in that space and be mentored by people who saw value in that, who have the rippling effects. I went on to 
continue creating using legal research and policy research to humanize in cases like the Dred Scott case, which was instrumental mm-hmm. in thinking historically about Black folks in America yeah. and segregation. And so the story that doesn't get as much airtime was the story of Harriet Scott, Dred Scott's wife. Mm-hmm. What I did is I I did the legal research. I did the qualitative and quantitative research in terms of what we could find and then read through all the information of the documents that she actually filed when she filed her initial case. And then I wrote a piece from a perspective of a mother during this time. And it it was interesting to do the research on what is it like to be um, a woman in slavery? What is it like to be a mother? What does motherhood look like? What does community look like? So doing that additional research of what people were able to pull and then stepping back and asking myself, how do I humanize this person? How do I take this and imagine you were in a 11-year fight to try to be free? You were a slave for X amount of years before you filed. What changed? Her children. (laughs) She had children. When I read those pleadings, it was very clear in the pleadings that they had said, this person had beat my children. One was like a under five, most certainly, three or five-year-old. And to see those things and have no recourse. I mean, as someone who's a mother now, (laughs) and so to imagine... What is the perspective of a mother to have their family go through freedom cases, as they were called back then, it was 11 years, fighting and hiding, your family torn apart? That was the thing where I look at merging art and law and storytelling as a perspective so that people can see the people behind the numbers, people can see the people behind the case. And that work is something I've loved doing and, again, have done that with lawyers in the room and they found it meaningful and they brought their children and they found it insightful. Like, how does this happen? You know, it's a different way to talk about history. Yeah, and a different way to talk about and experience the impact of the law, which in this case was that infamous Supreme Court decision that denied citizenship to enslaved people living in free states. Not only continuing the enslavement of Dred Scott and his wife Harriet and children Eliza and Lizzie, but also upending the Missouri Compromise and, some would say, sparking the Civil War four years later. A pretty big story with the kind of big headline that often obscures the real human tragedy at its center, but a story you brought back to life in the monologue you created for a commemorative event at Fort Snelling in Minnesota, and it's a piece you're going to share. Yeah. I wrote this back in uh, late 2016 for Dred and Harriet Scott days at historic Fort Snelling. So when you think about the Dred Scott case, his wife had also filed pleadings of whether slave or free for a child was tied to the mother's status. And some historical scholars have argued her filings was really potentially a stronger case. So the time at Fort Snelling was critical because in America, you had slave state, free state, slave state, free state. And so they had passed through free territory. And so the question was, because they were there, are they now free? The research that I did, all of the pleadings, as well as articles that looked at what it was like to be an enslaved woman during that time, the case from the time they filed until the Supreme Court decision was 11 years. And so this piece, A Letter in Perseverance, this setting for it is the night that the Supreme Court decision should have been coming down on March 1857. I wanted this piece to embody what could have been going through her head the night that she would have heard the decision from Washington, D.C., a decision in their freedom after 11 years. A lesson in perseverance. Thank you, Reverend Addison, for the food. Now, Eliza, make sure you look after your sister. And Lizzie, 
Listen to your older sister. And both you, my reverend and his wife, they done doing a good thing for us here. I know, babies. Don't you cry, Lizzie. I need you both to be strong now, you hear? And I don't know how much longer you're going to be staying with them. But soon, Eliza. This will all be done soon, and we'll be able to be together again. I know. I know you miss your father. And I'll let him know you love him. Now get in that carriage. Y'all go. Hurry up now before them slave patrol come out here. Y'all know they ain't like seeing us gathering together, and ain't no one getting them 20 lashes tonight. them get out to this house safely tonight. I know I shouldn't have had them come, but I just had to see them. It's been weeks since I've been able to see my children. They say they, they let me know when that decision they made today. Eleven years. I may not always know them days, but I know today's March 6, 1857. And we've been fighting about eleven years. It was supposed to take this long. Rachel done had her freedom about a year after she filed her case. These ain't that different. I don't understand. It wasn't supposed to be like this. Mr. Tolliver didn't want this for me. He done freed 21 of the rest of his slaves. He just, he couldn't want this for me. We don't have more masses than I care to count. Mr. Robinson, Mr. Tolliver, Mr. Emerson, Mr. Blow, Mrs. Emerson, Mr. Sanford. The worst of them was Mr. Sanford. That man done beat my little girls right in front of me. They are so small. I couldn't do nothing. Couldn't do nothing unless he get himself killed. Mm-mm. I couldn't see my children beat like that ever again. Is it too much for us, God, to want to be our own masses? Virginia, Missouri, Louisiana, Fort Snelling. So many homes. So many trips. I even had, had to have Eliza on that there ship. God, is it too much to want to pick our own home and when we come and when we go? I, I remember when I was a kid and playing in that hotel with my mama. I sure miss my mama. I had been about 10 last time I saw my mama. When I was with Mr. Tolliver at the fort, it wasn't so bad. I had a Eliza. She was like a mama and a sister to me. I even named my little Eliza after her. She looked out for me, made sure I didn't mess up, especially with that there cooking. When she had her daughter Susan, I treated her like she's my own kin. I sure they free now. Mr. Tolliver promised he'd free him. God, is it too much to her? Wanna know if my mama's dead or alive? Or where my kin is? It's so hard missing my family like this. I think about Eliza and Lizzie. They now past that age when I last saw my mama. I worry about them so much. I think about that, uh, that pretty little girl at the fort. That poor girl them, them soldiers touched. God, am I a bad mama for praying when my girls was little that they ain't get that pretty just so them mountain men don't force themselves up on them? I just couldn't watch them go through that and see them sold down south like that pretty little girl. I remember when we was in Louisiana. We don't see some things down there. I couldn't let my daughters go through that. Mm-mm. I ain't gonna let my daughters go through that. Down there, I remember seeing so many young boys working. Made me remember my two sons. I loved them so much. Dred was so happy to be a father. The first one, he had his nose. And that second one, he had his eyes. When they died little, I cried so much. It pained me so bad. God, am I a bad mama? Cause I was all so happy when they died. They was free and wouldn't have to live the rest of their lives being called boy. I have to see their wife sold like Dredd did before. He ain't talk about that much, but I know that still pains him. And for them to be in a position where they can't, they can't protect their family like a man should. I miss my sons, but I thank God they ain't going through this. When we done started this fight, I was about 28. 
I was stronger then. My hands, they ain't paying me so much. So many years working like this, cooking, cleaning, sewing, serving. Lord, I ain't want my lies and little hands to get like this. I want, I want their hands to write. I want them to turn pages in all them books they gonna read one day. I want their hands to hold children, their children, that they ain't have to worry whether or not they free. In church, the Reverend say, run that race and don't get tired. Been 11 years, God. And my bad mama and wife put my family through this. My daughter's been hiding for so long. All of us fanning for our safety. Me tearing us apart just so we could be together. God, I'm tired. But I know I can't give up. Trial after trial, court after court. Is they resident? Is they citizen? Mm, they, they property. Is they people? They keep telling us, 11 years ago, this case should have been easy. But things done change in that there Negro matter and slavery. They say it's just politics. It's just about property. Hmm, politics? Maybe for them it's politics. But for us, it's our lives. It's my daughter's lives. I can't take it no more. It is our lives when my husband can't work for wages. It is our lives when we fear whether not one of us gonna get sold and our family be torn apart forever. It is our lives when Mr. Sample beat us. And property? We birth their children. We care for them when they sick. We raise their children. Would you trust all that to just property? It may be politics and money for them, but it is ours. We as people. As one Negro woman with one Negro husband and two Negro children. Dread about 60, 62. How about 39? 40's over a slave. Ain't gonna get much more years out of us. We done offered them more money than we's worth. God, I can die tomorrow, but God let my girls be free today. You have news from Washington? Yes, sir. How's alone? You ain't think it's safe for me to be alone tonight? Yes, sir. Let me grab some things. Judge LeJune Lang and the Minnesota Historical Society thought it'd be great to have somebody come in and humanize the case, like make their story real. So you can look and say, oh, this was a big case. It decided whether or not blacks were citizens or had rights. But for me, the way that I think about law, the way I think about research, is that there are people on the other side of this. And to actually, what happened was when they, they began this journey and things continued to get more contentious and the case went on for longer and longer, the family did go in and out of hiding. Their girls had to be in hiding for a significant portion of their childhood. What would it be like if you were a mom and you saw your toddler beat by a grown man who was just angry? What would, what would it take for you to push to file a case? Because they were enslaved for a while before this. And so the first thing that was inside of their initial pleadings highlighted that he had beat their children. And, and that to me, in looking through all, this must have been a really strong catalyst for them to say, it's time to get out of this. It was open to the public, and so there was a mix. There were lawyers in the room, there were families, um, there were other scholars who were historians present, as well as descendants from um, Dred and Harriet Scott uh, in the room. And so the response, it was, it was well received. And they brought me back for several years after to do additional pieces that dug into the research even further. And so 
I, I will highlight every paragraph, every sentence that was included has behind it a ton of different documents that were reviewed. Everything is factual and history. In terms of talking about the girl at the fort who was raped, they lost their first two kids. They had two boys first and they, they died. Like all of those things are pieces of that history. And it's so interesting because you have a foot in multiple worlds and you can say, yeah, I'm a lawyer too. I speak your language. I understand how you define success. This can help. <laughs> Take my word for it. And that bridge is rare and critical, is basically being able to, it's like being bilingual, trilingual. Like that. And so how was that, that received, that work? What is, what's come of that? I'm yeah. So that work, I ended up, it was a historical society that brought me in to do that. And I had a wonderful a mentor again, which I would certainly give her a shout out and thank her to Dr. Judge Lejeune Lang. So she was the one who made that connection for me in the beginning. And I had an opportunity to do it one year. And then they kept bringing me back for several years to do it in the summertime, to do it as a series. And it was, I think, what was most impactful for me doing those performances and that research was seeing the children in the talkbacks, because we always did a talkback after the performance, and having the kids ask the question of some that stuck out to me, little kids saying, were the little kids really separated from their parents? Were they in hiding for so long? Why would someone do that? And then let's having an honest conversation mm. about the history. And there's a lot happening in our society right now as we want to talk about situations in history and race, slavery, and what goes into our history books. I'm of the position that we should be digging into these honest, deep conversations. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be something that is going to the extremes of you're evil and you're evil and we're just not going to say anything. The first time I performed this piece was actually a weekend when they had descendants of Justice Tawney who came down with the Dred Scott decision yeah. and the Dred Scott family descendants. And so it was a panel and they were connecting that weekend. It was a series of what was happening, building up around that case. And being able to have these open conversations can allow for us to take the veil off of it and allow for some reconciliation and allow for some acknowledgement. I've been to other countries where atrocities have happened and they've been able to put a light, shine a light on it. And so for me, seeing the outcome of this kind of work is seeing that light switch go off for people at a young age and parents having this conversation with their kids, an environment where we're not here to ridicule, it's just to educate. And that's been impactful for me. Part three, a very interesting tension. It reminds me of Octavia Butler and her approach basically saying, you're not going to get this until you get inside it. You're going to meet these characters. You're going to internalize it. You're going to go beyond the stupid conversations that we fall into with this. It reminds me, there are so many professions where there's a wall between the people and the good intention of people trying to do good work in medicine, trying to do good work. In law, for sure, in the justice system itself, many lawyers that I've met who basically say, I came into this because of this, and now I feel like I'm almost the devil as a lawyer in this system. That resonates. And I know a number of lawyers who are frustrated because the more it's 
like the more you know, like, wait a minute, we thought this was built to do X, Y, and Z, and it's definitely doing A, B, and C, which now we're wondering if that's what it's intended to exactly. do all along. You know, at the end of the day, I tend to believe I, I would rather spend my life trying to do what I can to change it, do what I can to help people navigate it, which is its own conversation. I had a conversation with a woman a while back where we were proposing to do something that helped people navigate these systems. And this person had a lot of money. They worked for a foundation and said, I think that defeats the purpose. We should be trying to break down and get rid of these systems. Mm. And so we don't think there's room for something like mm. this now. And my team, we sat back and we laughed. We're like, she's not wrong. We agree. The intention is to build better systems, get rid of these systems. Right. But what happens between that gap of when a new system is built and today, there are millions of people, exactly. there are billions of dollars and lots of people who are missing out on economic opportunity. Yes while you all are trying to build something new and having the same conversations at the same table where people are, don't have access to it. Yes. And so that's, it's just a very interesting tension. Yeah, and there's a similar tension in the prison abolition movement, which can mean many things to many people. And to my mind, the most thoughtful approaches to abolition have recognized that you just can't take an eraser to the prison industrial system. I think the power and brutality of the carceral juggernaut has to be met with an even more powerful decarceration revolution based on community-grounded preventative and restorative justice policies and systems. Systems that actually displace significant aspects of the criminal justice apparatus over time with whole community approaches that advance human justice, community healing, and real public safety. And my conversations with some returned residents, there's a fear that some abolitionists are forgetting about the nearly two million souls currently stuck inside. The whole thing is an extremely heavy lift and a conundrum. It is. As you alluded to earlier, I am a musician. I, I majored in music and I minored in sociology, focusing on the sociology of difference. And so there's this brilliant professor at the school that I attended, Karen Rosenblum. <laughs> and she focused on creation of difference. And while you were talking, what popped into my mind were studies like the Zimbardo experiment and looking at how we other people and how we looking at how we can dehumanize people actually mm -hmm. and what that looks like. Here's Democracy Now!'s Amy Goodman describing what transpired. In 1971, psychology professor Philip Zambardo created an experiment at Stanford University in which 24 male college students were randomly assigned the roles of prison guards and prisoners at a makeshift jail on campus, actually in the psychology building. The experiment was scheduled to run for two weeks. By day two, the guards were going far beyond keeping the prisoners behind bars. In scenes eerily similar to Abu Ghraib, prisoners were stripped naked, bags put on their heads and sexually humiliated. The guards had become dangerously sadistic and the prisoners were breaking down emotionally. The two-week experiment had to be canceled after just six days. And it was fascinating to me as both an artist and someone learning about sociology and societies. It's like this terrible formula. And part of it is removing the names and the individuality of people. 
and isolating groups. And so when you're saying that the prisoner is saying, don't forget about me, part of making someone invisible, making a group invisible is hiding them behind a number, hiding them behind a, a slur, hiding them behind an other, that it doesn't matter. It's, it's so far removed from me that if the more easily I can think of them as different and removed and separate, the easier it is to forget about them, to create systems and structures and policies that don't care about them, and for me to not care about them as a human. That's what's a part of that formula. And I think circling back to what you're saying about storytelling, I think there's great power in continuing to find ways to highlight the stories <laughs> of the people that you were saying not to forget about. I do wonder what it continues to look like to have their voices heard, have their stories, because I believe that people can change. Mm -hmm. And to hold somebody to their worst moment can erase a whole life's potential. I encountered profound examples of what you're describing in two very different but totally connected environments. The first is the reaction to the training and proliferation of incarcerated artists inside prisons. And over and over again, I had correctional officers come to me and say, what, how is that possible? That person could do this thing, make a pot, do a soliloquy, play an instrument, recite a poem, a beautiful poem, a sad poem, tell a story that these are people who live cheek by jowl. They're with each other 24-7. It is the apex of dehumanization and the shock above and beyond ideology and good people, bad people, just the shock. How is that possible? Okay. So you're really dealing with the most commodified version of that twisted distortion that occurs so quickly in the human brain. And the second version of this story takes place in the California State Legislature when we would bring the extraordinary artwork from those incarcerated artists into those venerable halls and committee rooms. And there would be legislators there who, over the previous decades, had been making the laws and appropriating the money that produced the largest prison system in the history of the world. And they're looking at the artwork and they're going, same thing. You're telling me you're making this up. This can't be a true thing. This beautiful thing, this poignant thing, this thing that has touched my heart came from there, those people. My experience is that we're all way more susceptible to this than we think. Our brain will do this to us at the drop of a hat. Dehumanization is an everyday thing. So if I could change channels here a bit, uh, could you talk about what you want as you build the story of your work, where you see it going? Yeah, if there's a unique quality to your work, how does it flower? What next chapter is there for it? Yeah, I really would love to see even more economic impact. I want to be able to see... Enterprises, entities, those in positions of power, no matter how big or small, as a result of interacting with us, that they have quantifiable economic impact that happens. We have worked with amazing people. And so I think I'd say that the shortest version of where I'm going on this rabbit hole is that 
for the leaders that we've seen who have a heart to have change, I, I want to see the supports for them to lead and have the impact that they would like to because they brought us. In. I would like to see actual dollars into the communities. Mm-hmm. I want to see where there's an enterprise, a company, an individual who has a desire for change and the capital to do it, whether it's development, whether it's building businesses, rebuilding a main street, that dollars get to the people who live in those communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm saying their jobs, their businesses, the red tape is minimized, removed and accessible because there, if we look at the future of our country, it's increasingly diverse by racial demographics, culturally, as well as age. And how can communities be more proactive about that and position who will be a larger portion of our population to continue to drive the economy? There are brilliant people in every community, mm-hmm. and sometimes they just don't know where to start. So for a person listening, they're going, who are these people? Sort of social entrepreneurs, people who work in public agencies, p- people who are aspiring to a new business in a community. Could you just describe your constituency? When I'm thinking about these people, I'm thinking about those who are inside of these systems trying to rebuild from within. They need support. They need assistance. When they've done all that they can do, somebody's got to say yes or no. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so who are the gatekeepers to the gatekeepers who are trying to open the gate? Mm -hmm. Figuring that out and reworking that, doing the professional development for that, changing the mindsets to do that and doing it. And then on the other side, it's the people who are knocking at their door, the community members, the residents and the citizens in every community across our country. I'm talking about every single zip code, every census tract, having equal representation and equal access and equal economic opportunity. I'm talking about the people who are like, I want to do this thing. I don't know who to call. I don't know where to go. I don't know how to start. Mm. Give me those tools Mm. and I can change the world. Get those people the money get those people access, get them the information. Mm -hmm. And I want to see all of that. I want to see people see themselves in all the places and spaces where they dream. That's a wonderful vision and a lovely place to end, I think. Thank you, Tasidra, for sharing your stories and insights. Thanks. I I appreciate it very much. And thanks to you folks out there who've taken the time to tune in to these stories and conversations and Of course, if you really dig it and want more, please follow or subscribe for free in your preferred podcast listening app. And if you are totally obsessed with what we're up to, you can explore our entire archive based on your specific interests like youth arts, cultural organizing, prison arts, change-making media, and nine other categories in our Change the Story collection, which you can find in our show notes and at www.artandcommunity.com under the podcast dropdown. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. Our theme and soundscape spring forth from the head, heart, and hands of the maestro Judy Munson. Our text editing is by Andre Nebe. Our effects come from freesound.org, and our inspiration rises up from the ever-present spirit of OOP 235.